and welcome back to the Orthodox Union's Jewish Reaction here on the Nachum Siegel Network. My name is Rabbi Yaakov Glasser. I am the Director of Education for International NCSY and the Regional Director of New Jersey NCSY. And I am here today with a fascinating guest uh, that really comes on the heels of quite a few weeks of uh, real unbelievable events that have been unfolding in the land of Israel, uh, from the experiences with the missile attacks to their aftermath to Israel's uh, having to deal with the Palestinian situation at the U.N., and now, of course, in the entire uh, world debate about Israel's continual building in the areas that, of course, we believe to be part of authentic Eretz Israel. And as we are now on the cusp of the holiday of Hanukkah, uh, celebrating it just this coming Motzei Shabbos, uh, we remember that the whole notion that the small group of Jewish people against the mighty armies of the Greeks, the Rabbim Biyad Me'atim, that even when those odds seem so much not in our favor, uh, that we still have the capacity and we have the ability to stand up for what's right, and that when we do so, uh, HaKadosh Baruch Hu is there for us. You know, I wanted to share uh, an insight from Rabbi Salavechik. Rabbi Salavechik explains that the reason why Hanukkah does not have your typical uh, prohibition of melacha, your prohibition of doing work that we find on Shabbat and on normal holidays, is that Shabbat and normal holidays sort of feature God's centrality in our lives, whereas the holiday of Hanukkah draws attention to the centrality of our lives in the world of God and how we did not just sit idly by while we were oppressed. We did not just wait for external miraculous salvation, that rather the Hashmonaim stood up and as much as they may have been militarily unprepared and unable to face the massive armies of the Greeks, nevertheless, they took a stand for what was right. They did not succumb to world pressure, and they fought back. And Kodesh Baruch of course, intervenes and is there to miraculously save them. And, and the miracle of the oil of the menorah is uh, an affirmation that a Kodesh Baruch Hu is, of course, with us the entire time. And that whole experience of lighting the menorah, that very first candle this year on Motzei Shabbos on Saturday night, uh, together with Havdalah, uh, when we really, really personify uh, Jewish history in terms of our ability to illuminate the darkness of all of our challenges and all of the oppression throughout Jewish history with that little bit of light. And there's no question that as Israel faces uh, such incredible challenge throughout the world, that that light that we bring to the table, that that human initiative that we bring to our national experience, uh, that we are asking God every single day to intervene supernaturally and show us success and salvation. But our candle, our menorah, is without question the Tzvah Haganah Israel, the Israeli Defense Forces, and our men and women who are prepared to put their lives on the line uh, to fight for the Jewish people. In the face of tremendous world opposition, uh, we know that we have the most ethical army in the world, the most moral army in the world, and despite the fact that it is constantly under assault by so many media outlets and, and various countries and the United Nations itself, uh, nevertheless, uh, we know that we stand for what's right, and we know that uh, that God is certainly behind us. Uh, those those youngsters that fight in our military 
Of course, we know that uh, in Israel itself, there is a draft, and when the children reach a certain age, all of them are required to enter into some sort of national service. Um, the women sometimes will fulfill it uh, through different roles, and many men will also fulfill it through different roles. But recently, uh, it has become more and more popular for American boys uh, to find themselves volunteering to contribute to the world of the IDF. And there are, in fact, a growing number of parents uh, sitting back now in the United States of America as they watch their children enlist in the IDF and make their way to the front lines to fight for the Jewish people. Uh, what we wanted to talk about today here on the Nachum Siegel Network with the OU's Jewish Reaction is the perspective of these parents, what it takes to be a parent who is willing to let your child get on a plane, fly 7,000 miles away, and enter into a situation that certainly uh, puts their, their life at stake uh, on behalf of the Jewish people. Uh, how such a decision comes about and how parents cope with that, uh, that you know, certain lifestyle of, of uncertainty and, uh, and, and what, what that experience is truly like. And, and for that perspective, we have here today with us on the Nachum Siegel Network, on the phone, Rabbi Eitan Katz. Rabbi Eitan Katz uh, is an individual who right now serves as the Associate Director of NCSY here in New Jersey, uh, but he is also proudly the father of a recently enlisted son, uh, who is a tremendous young man, and uh, I want you to hear a little bit about him. So first, I'd just like to welcome Rabbi Katz. Rabbi Katz, welcome to the Nachum Siegel Network and to the OU's Jewish Reaction. Thank you very much, Rabbi Glasser. It is a privilege to have you here. So tell us a little bit about uh, your son and uh, how this decision came about and how he found himself now in the uh, welcoming moments that uh, pretty soon I believe he's going to be uh, transferring from his yeshiva experience to his army experience. Well, so I'll tell you, Rabbi Glasser, my son was born in Israel. We lived in Israel for, for 20 years, actually, for a little bit longer. And he always grew up in the atmosphere of, of course, I'm going to join the army. And I use the word join very carefully. He spoke about a, uh, a draft. There is a mandatory draft. That is 100% true. But the combat units are volunteer units. What happens in every unit almost before going to battle, similar in the way that the Torah describes to us, the commanding officer stands in front of the unit and says, we're about to go into battle. Whoever does not want to go, whoever had a bad dream, whoever does not feel right at the moment can step aside and there'll be no hard feelings. And that is the way the Israeli army works. It is a mandatory draft, but for the top units, it's a volunteering opportunity. So my son always grew up with an atmosphere of, of course I'm going to join, and of course I'm going to join an elite unit. Uh, we moved back to the States about eight years ago, and he went to an American high school and definitely had the same opportunities that every other American teenager has, going to college and everything else. But in his mind, there was never a, a question um, as far as what to do. And in his mind, there was never a question of only trying out for the elite units. That was always a given. Um, so as far as him making the decision, it was a decision made many, many years ago for him. 
Wow, that's that's incredible. Um, let's bring his name up here because uh, I, I don't think we've introduced him, even though he's not not with us on the phone. But uh, Shmuley Katz is, of course, who we're talking about the latest hero of the Jewish people to be joining the IDF, the son of uh, Rabbi Eitan Katz and his amazing wife, and uh, they live. Where where do you live, Rabbi Katz? So we live in Fairlawn. Uh, we've been living in this country for about eight years now. You live in Fairlawn, New Jersey, and and so Shmuley is going to be entering the IDF when? Shmuley is now part of Hezder, part of uh, Hezder in Yeshiva Yerucham, which is in the middle of the Negev. Uh, he is actually part of the IDF at the moment. He's enlisted already. He is now on the pre-army part of the Hezder, and he's actually going into the, the army starting in July of this year. Wow. And, and as a parent, could you, could you speak to, I mean, certainly uh, your idealism comes across in terms of talking about how you raised your children with a sense of duty uh, to Eretz Israel and to the Israeli Defense Forces. Uh, but I imagine as a parent, uh, yourself, your wife, uh, you certainly must struggle with uh, the re- same realities that all parents in Israel struggle with, uh, knowing that their children are, are going off to battle, specifically if they're joining a combat unit. Uh, can you speak a little bit to what those struggles are like and, and how you cope with them? So, to, to be very honest, um, I think the best way to describe that is to quote my father, Lava Shalom, when he realized that I was about to join the paratroopers as well. And my mother was trying to persuade him to talk me out of it. And I remember to this day what he said about 25 years ago. He said, I raised my sons in a certain way with certain beliefs, with certain ethics values, with certain Torah value, what am I supposed to do when my son is doing exactly what I taught him to do? So, obviously, I'm very much aware, so is my wife, about the, the dangers, to be very blunt, of the Israeli army, of any army. Um, but we strongly believe with all our might that he is doing the right thing, that he is not only doing the right thing, to some extent he's doing the only thing that a uh, person who wants to spend the rest of his life in Israel is doing. And we're incredibly proud. We're very much aware of it's not only the, the dangers of possible, God forbid, injury, it's also the fact that you're going to be going through a life decision, that this is going to be your life for the next 20-odd years. It's not just the daily risks. It's also the intense, intense training. It's also the constant nights of no sleep, the, the pain, the agony, the staying up all night in freezing cold, icy rain, the, the physical endurance. That's as much of an issue as the issue of the physical danger. And it's a very difficult decision to support. On the one hand, we fully understand that this is the right thing to do. On the other hand, um, like any other parent would be, we're very torn. It's a perfect example of a mixed emotion of tremendous pride and tremendous fear. And with that, I don't want to get into the political issue. You know, people always ask the question of, do you really support the government decisions of Israel at the moment? And again, I want to quote my father, Lava Shalom, who said, we may or may not agree with every decision that the state of Israel makes, but I know one thing for sure, it's the best Jewish government we have today. Uh, it's the best Jewish homeland that we have. So obviously we have to support it. And I think the beauty of the Israeli army is the Israeli army methodology of training has never changed. They're still training for the same wars that we have been for the past 60-odd years. 
that has not changed. We still train to defend the state of Israel against Syrian attack, against Jordanian attack, or any other country. So there's a, there's a certain purity about, about serving in the Israeli army, that it's, it's not a political organization, of course, and you're there for one purpose and one purpose only, and that is defending the Jewish people. Um, I was talking just a couple of hours ago to a friend who used to live in Gush Katif in, in, the, in, in Aza. And we're talking about what life was like in those days and, and, and the different trainings and different battles. And we don't support every Israeli decision that's made, but we do all support the Israeli army. That's one thing that unifies the Jewish people is its unilateral support of the soldiers and, and the army that we serve in. That's uh, that's that's extremely well said, and and I can't I can't even begin to imagine the the challenge of uh, turning on the radio or the television, looking online, opening a newspaper, and seeing governmental decisions being made that may, on a in a political or even an intellectual level, uh, strike you as as you know not something that would resonate with your own thinking, uh, but nevertheless retain that such an absolute commitment and, and fundamental idealistic commitment. Uh, that no matter what, uh, you know, we have to support the government in terms of, of their movements forward, and uh, and certainly support our 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 men and women in the IDF. Rabbi Katz, have you ever been present at one of these uh, dramatic ceremonies? I know some of us that have uh, visited Israel, um, where the soldiers are inducted at the Kotel or at Masada. Um, is is that a ceremony that 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 Shmuley will be going through? Um, that is a ceremony he's going to be going through. Uh, the paratroopers, the Tanchanim, do it at the Kotel. Um, I was there many years ago at my own swearing-in ceremony. And I think that one of the incredible beauties of the swearing-in ceremony for every single Israeli soldier is that you receive two things simultaneously at the same time. It does not matter if you believe or if you don't believe, if you're orthodox, if you're conservative, if you're unaffiliated, it does not matter. Every Israeli soldier, without exception, receives two things at the same time at the swearing-in ceremony. In one hand, they receive a rifle, and in one hand, they receive a Bible, a Tanakh. And I think that that really expresses what the Israeli army is all about. Uh, you started speaking, Rabbi Glass, about the moral values of the Israeli army. And when you receive your Tanakh and your rifle simultaneously at the Kotel, I think that very clearly states, you know, what the values are. The other piece of the swearing-in ceremony, um, and Orthodox Jews don't actually swear, we actually affirm commitment to the Israeli army, it is the most significant, aside from marriage, by the most significant commitment you're making your entire life. You are committing at the age of 18 with... I guess a limited amount of knowledge at that age, only an 18-year-old can really understand, you're committing yourself for the next 20-odd years to defend the Jewish people, to defend the land of Israel, the state of Israel, and to be on call for the next 20-odd years at a moment's notice whenever the army calls you up to possibly lay your life on the line for the greater good of the Jewish people. And when you go forth to battle with a Tanakh in your hand, and a very strong moral and ethical belief. I think it's an incredible, proud moment. It's a beautiful moment. The, the swearing-in ceremony at the Kotel or Masada is one of the most dramatic, moving experiences for any soldier in the Israeli army. 
That's that's absolutely incredible, and what what it must mean uh, when you when you experience those moments, standing there knowing that uh, you yourself uh, had a parallel experience as well, and kind of the next generation, and hopefully we'll have an opportunity to have you back here on the Nachum Siegel Network at the OU's Jewish Reaction, maybe to even reflect on that experience uh, after after it takes place. Are, are you in touch, Rabbi Katz? Is there is there a community of parents whose children are in the IDF that sort of provide each other with some, you know, some sense of, of mutual support. I mean, I imagine that, that people who are not going through this experience, uh, while they certainly have a lot of admiration uh, for what you're doing and a lot of pride for what your, your family is doing, I assume there's a certain dimension of this that you could only understand if you're in it. Um, does such a, such a community, such connections exist? So the truth of the matter is um, there are small communities like that. There are small support groups. Uh, the Army itself does not organize or coordinate um, any such support group, um, not to the best of my knowledge. Um, usually your support group becomes your friends and your neighbors. I would like to add one more interesting thing about the swearing-in ceremony at the Kotel. It's a very interesting, uh, I guess it's a law or commandment in the Israeli Army. You do not salute your officer at the Kotel. The Israeli Army policy basically states that when you're in front of the Kotel, when you're in front of God himself, when you're in front of the Shekhinah, never having left that place, how can you salute a Basav Adam? How can you can salute a mere human being? Which is an incredible thing. It's a humbling moment for officers, and it's a tremendous, um, sends off a tremendous message that when you're swearing in at the, at the Kotel, and at that point, the greatest thing in your life is the officers in front of you, uh, who you have tremendous admiration and respect for. And they tell you, in front of God himself, you, you don't salute me, you only salute God. I think it's a tremendous message that is sent off by the Israeli army. Wow, that is really, that is incredibly moving, incredibly uh, inspirational. Wow, I, Rabbi Katz, I just want to thank you for taking the time uh, today to talk with us. Um, your family's commitment to the land of Israel is just, you know, surely remarkable. Uh, we only, you know, wish Mali the best in terms of his uh, service with the IDF. Uh, we know he's brave, we know he's courageous, we know he's strong, uh, and we certainly know where all of that comes from, uh, listening to you talk. And uh, we, wish, we wish all of you just uh, to be safe and that uh, everything should move forward. And, and this is really uh, a modern-day Maccabee. Or really, a you know somebody who who is really putting themselves out there for the Jewish people, and and it's important for us to understand as a community that that doesn't only affect the soldiers in the field, but uh, those that are that are back home. His siblings, Shmuley's siblings, are by cats. Are, are are they nervous? Are they concerned? Are they full of the same overflowing pride as as you and your wife are? How do they approach this? I would say nervous and concerned is a tremendous understatement. I think terrified might be a a better use of a, a better adjective in this case. Um, it, again, it is it, it is the epitome of a mixed emotion. It's tremendous, tremendous, tremendous pride and, and terrifying. Um, you know, time time ahead. I think that I speak for for all parents of combat soldiers that. You don't sleep at night. Um, many parents of combat soldiers at night end up having uh, mouth guards to prevent their teeth from shattering. Many need sleeping aids because they can't sleep. It is almost 
waiting to hit a phone call, waiting for something to happen. So I think the terrified is, uh, is probably a better word to be used in this case. Certainly, certainly. But I'm sure they're full, they're full of that pride as well, that their brothers out there protecting the Jewish people. Indeed. Okay. Rabbi Eitan Katz, Associate Regional Director of New Jersey NCSY, thank you so much for being with us here on the OU's Jewish Reaction on the Nachum Siegel Network. Uh, we thank you for joining us. We look forward to talking to you again. Thank you so much. Thank you, Rabbi Glasser. Hi, everybody. Steve Savitsky, and today we have Aryeh Lightstone, Rabbi Aryeh Lightstone, who is the NCSY Regional Director for the New York area and uh, is going to be moving on to some exciting things, and maybe we'll get to that a little bit later on in the interview. But Aryeh, how are you today? Uh, thank God. Doing very well. How are you? Well, I am very well. Thank you for asking. So, you know, we're doing a big, big spread on Sandy and, and what happened, uh, all the different ramifications, and you kind of look at it from a little different point of view because um, it's the more personal human interest stories. Uh, and I know that you've spoken to some of the people uh, at the Jewish Action, and I know they'll be writing about some of those. So tell us about, I know you were telling us about, you say, three homes that almost became hotels. I mean, we know Arya lives in the Woodmere, and, uh, and I live in the community also, so we know each other well, and uh, we saw all the acts of kindness that happened during, uh, during Sandy. But there are particular heroes and heroines in this whole story, so why don't you tell us a little bit about some of them? Uh, If I can start just with really a personal note in terms of, you know, a little bit of uh, personal heroism. Uh, My wife was expecting actually on on the Tuesday of Sandy. Um, And, uh, you know, thank God she she held out. And uh, it's not because we didn't like the name Sandy per se, but but Friday morning, uh, you know, with the assistance of Hatsala navigating the roads that were mostly closed, uh, we got to the hospital okay and, and, you know, had a healthy baby boy. And then with a Shalom Zakhar plan for that Friday night, we still didn't have power in our house. Um, our kids were being watched by somebody else because the normal babysitter who would be helping wasn't able to make it to the house. And I showed up 45 minutes before Shabbos, and there's a Shalom Zakhar plan a block and a half away. Our meals and my kids were taken care of and bathed and dressed and ready for Shabbos in a warm house. And, and we went to <laughs> we went to a house for uh, for the Shalom Zakhar. They, they were only hosting 28 people for Friday night dinner, uh, cleared that away, and put on a Shalom Zakhar for 80, 85 people wow. uh, with, you know, two hours before Shabbos, no power, no anything, and they arranged everything. There was... Uh, uh, it, it was a little bit strange because normally these things, you know, sort of involve like the family, and it didn't. And we're not the best of friends with the family necessarily. We're friendly, but uh, but it wasn't even a question. And just walking that night, um, if if you remember, so there there was blackness, <laughs> which is where I live, and then there was. The, there was the you know the lip part of the neighborhood and and as I walked to the house that was hosting us for Friday night for the Shalom Zachar leaving from dinner there wasn't a dining room table that wasn't bursting at the seams twenty thirty people at every Friday if you had power you were you you were a restaurant that night and it was just so beautiful to see. Um, Particularly the the house that we stayed at and had the Shalom Zachar at, um, they were hosting five different couples from the neighborhood Farakway, Bayswater, uh, who had just moved in. Uh, the concept of knocking on the front door was non-existent because he didn't know who was going to open it. It was it was literally this was this was a community center in somebody's home. Wow, unbelievable! No, there's no question. There've been great things happened. I mean, as far as bringing people together, so. You were telling me, you know, a little bit about some of these people. Who are they, and what 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 did they do? You know, 
I'll, I'll use the word regular people, but it, it's clearly that the, I guess ordinary people who did extraordinary things, that's probably not the right statement. They're extraordinary people who on occasion, I guess, do ordinary things. Um, that, uh, you know, it was, it was, uh, one of the families that that took us in on on for for meals during the week and, and made sure that our kids were entertained. There was a teacher who was trying to make it from Brooklyn to Halb, I believe, uh, on a daily basis, and was concerned about the gas shortage. She wouldn't be able to make it to and from, so they moved in. She moved in with her husband and three kids into a family's house on Bryant, so she would be able to teach kids in the neighborhood because they were concerned that she wasn't going to be able to make it back and forth with gas. And it wasn't even wasn't even a question. <laughs> you know what I'm saying? Okay, you can't make it. You're living it out. Well, you're living with us. <laughs> it, it was just yeah. said so matter of factly, and, and and the woman was astonished. She was uh, okay, but if I need to make it to school tomorrow in order to teach Torah to to the kids, we're moving in. And she packed up her family. And they lived at the house for two or three yeah. nights. Wow, unbelievable, fantastic. What are the, what were some of the others? I mean. Uh... Um, so some of the other very exciting things were uh, exciting things. I, I guess inspirational. Um, things were, you know, when when the other side of Peninsula, as we say the other side, it's the side that I don't live on, uh, you know, the water came all the way up to and through the Youngsville of Woodmere, but the other side was, uh, you know, probably the hardest hit amongst, certainly amongst Woodmere and perhaps of the whole five towns. Um, and uh, the day after, Tuesday morning, uh, I remember they were they were going out with boats and National Guard and the big trucks in order to go ahead and to and to evacuate people who couldn't literally leave their homes. Um, and there was just a lineup of vans uh, sitting there. It was like it was carpool from a school, but it wasn't. It was on Church and Peninsula, just waiting there. Because after the National Guard or Hatzala dropped you off, they didn't bring you anywhere. And there were people waiting there with changes of clothes and with homes with hot showers and with places for you to go and stay. And, and there was a family, one family, and I don't remember the name right now, who had moved into the neighborhood maybe six weeks before and did not have any immediate relatives, certainly didn't have access to a phone because it had died with power, and, and got dropped off because they had to leave the house but had no place to go, and, and people were, were almost fighting about whose house they were going to be able to take them to. Wow, fantastic, unbelievable, incredible, incredible things. And what about the two people who work in your office, uh, what they did, uh, Yossi and Aryeh? Yeah. Sounds like they were really superheroes. This was... You know, we, we take it, I don't know if we take it for granted, but certainly prior to this, we took it for granted. We're part of a big community, and when somebody needs something, somebody always steps up. Uh, but our guys in the field who are in public schools day in and day out develop relationships. And I always tell them that, you know, you are the person who wakes up in the morning and is their Jewish connection. They don't have a rabbi. Most of them don't belong to shuls. They don't have a student activity coordinator, a camp counselor. It just doesn't exist. You are the person who thinks of them from a Jewish perspective on a daily basis. And normally that means, okay, so, you know, what are they going to do in the summer? And, and can they be exposed to Torah? And, you know, how do they feel about Israel? And that's normally the checklist of what that means is being their Jewish liaison, that changed overnight with a storm, and that meant, do you have heat? If you don't have heat, where's your family living? And if you're living at home, what are you doing for food? And, and Arya and Yassi, just yesterday we were reviewing, I think served somewhere over 180 meals just themselves to families individually. They either made or arranged families in our neighborhood to make kosher food for them and to bring it to their house for dinner. The kids ate at school because of whatever was provided in the cafeteria for lunch, but the family did not eat dinner if Yasin Arye didn't drive to Long Beach and Oceanside to drop off dinner. It was uh, ju- just yesterday, not yesterday, I'm sorry, I must have been on, on Sunday um, of this past week, they went and, and raised money internally 
in our office to buy a generator and heaters for a home where there was somebody who, for whatever reason, uh, some form of disability, couldn't leave the house. It was set up for them. There was another place to go, but they were living there without heat. And, uh, and they set up the way that way the house is still no lights, but at least would have heat in, in Oceanside. Um, there was another student uh, who the parents evacuated all their kids to various different family members, but when Oceanside High opened back up again, it was very difficult to make it from Park Slope, Brooklyn, to Oceanside and back and forth on a daily basis. So there was a family that we arranged, opened up their home, and, uh, and our office takes turns driving carpool from Lawrence to, uh, to Oceanside on a daily basis to make really? sure that it's only a 20-minute commute instead of a two-hour commute. Hmm. Amazing. So, so what is it about, I mean, what do you think? I mean, what, what prompts people to just act this way? Uh, how, do they, how do they have the, the strength to do this, or, you know, the vision to do this? I don't know where the strength comes from. I mean, there were people who didn't, who didn't sleep for two, three, four days uh, while this was happening. Um, where, where the strength comes from, I, I've got no idea. The, the vision and the care... Um, I think has been nurtured, and, and the, the, it was not surprising the people who stepped up. And, and it, was, it was really a neighborhood. It was a community that stepped up, and this is a community that has a reputation for stepping up for others. Uh, you know, thank God this hasn't been a community that people have needed to step up for internally before. But when, when the time came, that's what people did. They rose to the occasion. Um, it's <laughs> just difficult, difficult to articulate. We, we, I, was, I was sent by the OU and YU uh, however many years ago to lead the Jewish response to Katrina. And, uh, and I was down there with, with 80,000 people the second night in the Astrodome. And I was just overwhelmed by what needed to be done and, and how it could be done and how few of us there were in order to be able to help. Uh, and you sort of thought, okay, this is a chavayat, an experience. This isn't going to be relevant to you at any point in time. Uh, and then you went and, and you know, saw what Shariashev did and saw what the young of Woodmere did and saw the meals being served at Beth Shalom and saw our guys and gals going out and delivering dinner and, and heaters and stuff like that. And uh, without any of the organization, everything that happened in Houston, New Orleans, was coordinated and organized by the government and whoever else it was. This was people just doing stuff because they wanted to do stuff. Yeah, no, I think people just wanted, people who wanted to help. And these are, and the amazing thing I think about our community, Arya, was that so many of the people who helped were people who needed help themselves. Oh, without a doubt. Yeah, with, that was really, with, that was really incredible to me. People whose homes, their own homes were, you know, uh, were, were uh, you know, uh, full of water. Uh, they had, they had, you know, they had to evacuate their own homes. And they were the ones spending all their time helping other people instead of trying to just say, "Let me take care of myself." It was a really, it was an incre- it was an incredible situ- it was an incredible uh, situation, one that I never saw before in my entire life. If if I can sing the praise of my wife for one moment, for numerous different reasons, yeah, but please, I'm it's going to be on, it's going to be on the OU website, so it'll be, you know, she could always listen so maybe to my it. in-laws will hear this. She could download but, it, you know. But, uh, you know, when faced with the prospect of returning from the hospital with a newborn baby to a house without power, um, you know, there were numerous people in the neighborhood who opened up their homes and said, you can move in with us, no questions asked. And, uh, and obviously it's a challenging time for the, the mother and a newborn baby. But as we were able to, and the neighborhood sort of pitched in to figure out how we can bring heat back to the house. We weren't able to get lights or any electricity, but we got heat to the house, so it was, it was safe for the baby. Um, so Esty, uh, you know, refused 
to go to another home because we, we had a home that, that didn't have damage. We didn't have power, uh, but didn't have damage because there were people who really, really needed it. And uh, she had every excuse in the world uh, to be able to say, no, we, we need to be in a place with lights. That's a normal thing for a newborn baby and, you know, power and electricity and, you know, all these things. Um, but there were everybody else thought about and I think was grateful that the proximity to Thanksgiving I thought was very powerful. Um, but were, was when you were grateful for what you had, there wasn't a single person I spoke to and say, yeah, but I can't complain because look what that person has left. Right. I think, you know what? I think you're absolutely right, which is I was always waiting for that one person who really had it the worst because, <laughs> because everyone I spoke to, no matter what their situation was, it was really an incredible thing when you spoke to people and you said to them, so how'd you do during the storm? They say, thank God we, only, we, only, we, we didn't have power for two weeks. It was like, okay, thank God, that's all. We didn't have power for two weeks because they themselves looked at other people in the community who, unfortunately, you know, some of them, you know, had major damage. Some today we know won't be in their homes for who knows how long, you know, and others may never go back to their home. And so everybody was saying, Baruch Hashem, for what I had compared to what everybody else had. It was really, it was an incredible, incredible time period in the in the five towns, Rockaway, you know, Bell Harbor, Oceanside, uh, you know, community. It was an incredible, incredible time. Well, let me ask you one other question, Ari. You're a very smart guy. I mean, people maybe don't, they don't know you that well, but I do. So what's going to happen now? I mean, is this going to be just a little time when we get together because of all these terrible things? Or do you think there's a chance of making this into a springboard for something bigger? Or do you think it's really, unfortunately, going to dissipate once the problems start to evaporate? I'm, I'm going to have a moment of optimism here. Um, and uh, and normally I'm a little bit more pragmatic and, and there's, dare I say, cynical. Um, I read a beautiful op-ed by Ben Brothman uh, who commented um, that uh, what this provided for us from an educational perspective was humility. And uh, the gas lines didn't differentiate whether you were driving uh, a Lexus or a beat-up Chevy. Uh, and whether you were rich or you were poor, you were chashev or you were less chashev, and whatever the, whatever the category would be. And, and where the water went was completely and totally random. And when power turned on, uh, it's not like Lightbuy answered our phone calls anyway. So, you know, it was it, nobody knew. And there was tremendous... Uh, what could be perceived as luck of the draw, uh, but I think was perceived in our neighborhood with the, with the leadership that we have, rabbinic and non, as uh, as a tremendous uh, enlightening experience, uh, pun not intended in that particular case. Um, that uh, it was very very humble, and I think one of the things that draws us apart or has a tendency to pull us apart when it's more about me or it's more about I. Uh, but I don't believe I've ever been part of a community where it was more about we. And I think that there are bonds and relationships that were made that I think the next time, and there will be obstacles, and thank God, if, when there are obstacles, that means things are back to normal, and I think that's a great thing. But I think that people remember the houses that they went to when they were cold, the clothes that they wore when they didn't have, um, the value of a hot shower and clean laundry, and uh, you know the ability to go to sleep and not be cold. And uh, I think that those things will trump, and at least we're going to disagree. That's, that's what's going to happen. But I think that we're going to do it more civilly. I think we're going to do it more with an eye. It's less about me, and it's, it's more about what's better for the community. And I hope, you know, certainly, and pray that, uh, that that's going to be the reflection of, 
of our community moving forward. Terrific, terrific. Well, listen, Arie, thank you so much for being on the program and for what you did at NCSY and getting the kids involved and, um, you know, the different acts of chesed that, that we did at the OU and NCSY did and everybody else. So thank you very much. And uh, Mazel Tov on the new baby. And wh- by the way, you didn't name the baby Sandy, right? No, no, we uh, we were there. There were numerous... <laughs> Numerous polls and, and offerings for that, but we decided that we, we love our child. Yeah, we good. stuck with Simcha because the world needed a Simcha. That's at that right. Point I in agree time. with you. I'm in. Can you hear what's on? Be well. Take care. So long. Bye bye. Thank you. We certainly want to wish, uh, I would like to wish, on behalf of the entire Orthodox Union, uh, the entire listening audience here on the Nochum Siegel Network, a Freilich uh, and Hanukkah. Everyone should have certainly a inspirational experience, uh, certainly transcending all of the gift-giving and parties and dreidels and latkes, uh, is that spiritual strength of the Jewish people uh, as we place those menorahs in the windows of our home, uh, illuminating the world with the values and ideals of Judaism, of Torah, of God, and uh, we wish everyone a, a certainly a safe and inspirational uh, Hanukkah Sameach. Have a wonderful day.